Two and a Half Admins, episode 20. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got a couple of things to plug, Alan. Yes. On the 20th, the, yes, the 20th, um, hosting a, uh, another webinar about ZFS and this time specifically about OpenZFS 2.0. If you heard Jim and I going on about it, uh, was it two weeks ago? I think, uh, on the show, then you might be interested. Uh, we we're going to cover, uh, more than just what's in ZFS 2.0, but what those advantages are and what the implications are if you're building, uh, you know, if you're planning your next pool, but also how to take advantage of it on OSs that don't ship the new version, but how to get 2.0 on your OS and uh, start using it today. After that, we also have uh, a second thing uh, over on my company's website. We have another one of our articles up. This one is about uh, routing and firewalling VLANs using FreeBSD. So this uses FreeBSD's uh, VNet feature, which allows you to have multiple different network stacks running at the same time uh, and using that to basically have a different firewall for a different VLAN but multiple firewalls in the same machine, basically. Sounds like sorcery to me. Yes. But yeah, we'll have links for both those in the uh, show notes. So let's do some news then. And the first one, we don't generally swear too much on this show, but I'm going to now. Fuck GoDaddy, quite frankly. Just before Christmas, they sent their employees an email saying they were getting a holiday bonus. And then the people who clicked through the link a couple days later, got an email saying, oh, that was a phishing test, and now you have to do the training again. And by the way, yeah, there is no holiday bonus for anyone. Nice newsletter with fancy graphics saying, 2020 has been a record year, blah, blah, blah. Here, have a $650 one-time holiday bonus. And then, yeah, after you click through, it's psyched, this was a phishing scam. I don't know, seems legit enough to me. I mean, there's nothing stopping an attacker from sending the exact same thing out, and in theory, they should not fall for that by immediately providing, you know, whatever information the the fish was looking for. I wish that article had said more about, you know, what information the fish required them to put in. It was a little thin on the details. Yeah, my understanding is that it was just clicking the link was enough to trigger them to get the email saying you've got to take the training. To ensure that you receive your one-time bonus in time for the holidays, please select your location and fill in the details by Friday, December 18th. Right. Um, it doesn't actually say what triggered the email you failed our recent phishing test, but presumably it requires actually filling out that information. It never does say what that information was. Yeah, I do see it from the other side, right? That yes, they do have to conduct these tests and they do have to keep their security tight, but don't do it just before Christmas with that kind of thing. Your attackers aren't going to have any such scruples. Yeah, you know, that's something we definitely talked about before was the concept of trend jacking and, and specifically taking advantage of, of things that were happening, whether it's just a seasonal thing in the holidays or if it's sending Trump supporter emails. <laughs> you know, usually the way that you can help overcome that activation energy to get people to, to click through is to have it be topical. But I do wish there was more detail specifically like what were supposed to be the telltales that it was uh, a fake email as well. The big thing to me is just the details that it was looking for. Like if all it wanted was the name and address, uh, eh. but I mean, it, you know, if people clicked on the thing that said, congratulations, you're getting a bonus. What's your email password? Then yeah, fuck them. Retake the security test. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do know that the email is not customized with the, 
the recipient's name and so on. So that's a little bit of a giveaway, although not a big one. Oh, no, here's the huge tell right here. Any submittals after the cutoff will not be accepted. And you will not receive the one-time bonus of $650. And then, in parenthesis, free money, claim it now. Yeah, that's <laughs> totally what your HR department sends to you when you have a Christmas bonus. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're losing sympathy for the people who fell for this then. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, I mean, come on, man. Uh, Pay attention. I don't know how much sympathy I'm supposed to have for people who will just click on whatever crap shows up in their inbox and do whatever random thing without thinking about it. Like, if you're doing that, you're a problem. Stop. You know, it was really interesting to learn more about the the psychology and stuff that goes behind these. In particular, like, you always wonder, like, a lot of the phishing scams you see are, like, really badly written in, like, broken English. And you're like, why don't they do a better job? And it's like, well, normally... They are trying to get the people that are so dumb they're going to fall for it. So everything they do to turn off people that are not dumb means they don't waste their time on on the, you know, the less good marks. And then you have the opposite where you have something like spear phishing where, you know, you're specifically targeting people in like the military industrial complex and you make up a fake conference or make up emails for a real conference and, you know, get them to open the PDF that has the Adobe Zero Day in it or whatever to compromise their computer. It's like the difference between when I get the scam email that says, uh, you know, that claims to be an invoice for an iPhone that I bought on Amazon versus when I get the scam email that claims to be an invoice for, you know, buying a rack of Dell servers on Amazon. I got woken up by a phone call recently that said uh, you've recently done an Amazon Prime trial and you need to log into it to to make sure you're not going to get charged again which is true. Recently, I did do an Amazon Prime trial and this woke me up and I was, you know, what's going on? And then the guy started getting really irritated with me because I cottoned on and like he was saying, right, so, you know, are you on a computer or an iPad? I said, an iPad. He says, well, go to the Play Store then. And I said, okay, I've gone to the Play Store. He's like, there is no Play Store on on iOS. Why are you doing this? It was a very strange attitude. Like, I don't know what I thought it was going to accomplish, but yeah, I, I didn't fall for it. I fell for it for about 10 seconds while I was waking up, but then... I don't know, the main two I've been getting are, this is the Visa MasterCard Security Department, and congratulations, you've been paying your bill, and you qualify for 0% interest on all of your cards. Just press 1. <laughs> like, yeah, no. <laughs> and then, you know, this is the Enforcement Division of the Justice Department, and we're going to come arrest you if you don't pay us with iTunes gift cards. <laughs> Some of it is very sinister. Like, we found, you know, bad things on your computer or whatever, and if you don't pay us this much Bitcoin or whatever. I've definitely seen lots of the email ones where it's like, yeah, we turned on your webcam and we have pictures of you. We saw you having fun with the video that we put on our site, and, you know, we're going to... Yeah. We're going to do like a picture in picture of you abusing yourself while you watch the video and what the video is. And we know what you like. And the like I, I was getting a whole string of those for a while. And like I kept posting on Facebook and, you know, like telling my friends, like if one of you lot didn't come up with a thousand dollars, you're all going to have to watch it. <laughs> but the funniest thing was most of those things like, you know, they they try to get in your head with this, like really convincing you that they know what's going on. And um, this one string of them kept saying that, like, you know, what if everybody saw that picture next to you in that really nice car you drive? And I'm like, what? <laughs> Why are you bringing the Mazda into this? What's that got to do with it? <laughs> so I suppose companies like GoDaddy have to do shit like this, then, is the bottom line. Well, if 500 of their employees fell for it, that's a lot. 
I don't know what their total headcount is and so on. 7,000. That's what, about 8%? That's actually doing really well. I mean, I usually see... When I run phishing tests against clients that represent it, I usually end up with, you know, somewhere between like 30 and 50% failure rates, honestly. Sorry, GoDaddy folks, but if you were one of the 8% that fell for claim your free money now Christmas bonus, (laughs) well, yes, you're going to have to retake your email security test. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, manage Kubernetes, and more. Our website is hosted with Linode, and we couldn't be happier with them. So go to linode.com slash two and a half and click the Create Free Account button to get started. That's linode.com slash two and a half. All right, let's talk about Brexit then, and specifically the Brexit deal. So the Brexit deal was finalized on Christmas Eve, right in the nick of time. But then it was published a day or so later, and people started pouring through it. And they found some pretty strange technical details in there, like the suggestion that people use SHA-1. Netscape Communicator, the email client, uh, to be able to do S-MIME even though that was end of life in 1997. (laughs) So my question is, if they cut and pasted the text from a law from 2008, (laughs) why it was wrong then? (laughs) Well, it turns out that the one that they copy and pasted it from had copy and pasted it from an earlier one. And it was all about this DNA database, uh, well, database of DNA and other stuff uh, that is shared around Europe. Yes, Annex Law Number 1, Exchange of DNA, Fingerprints, and Vehicle Registration Data. And I guess the point is that it should only be communicated using encrypt, S-MIME encrypted email. <laughs> yeah, there's there's so much wrong with that. I mean, if security is important enough that you need to enshrine into law the correct technology to use, then it's apparently important enough that you should be hiring people to be involved in the drafting of those laws that actually understand the technology and are reviewing it, right? Well, in particular, I think you probably don't want to enshrine algorithms into the law because they will need to change on a regular basis and laws take a while to get changed. You know, that's why the the whole point of things like the AES, the Advanced Encryption Standard, is that this is a standard that will be reviewed constantly and be updated over time. And we just say you have to follow the, the current best practices or whatever. And that says, you know, you can use this algorithm and then we will eventually deprecate it and you'll have this long to move to the new one. And I don't know that it makes sense to have to update the law every four years to say, hey, you know, you should be using at least 4096-bit uh, TLS keys now, not 2048 or whatever. Well, I mean, you can kind of work around that by saying that, you know, the law is that you have to adhere to the best practices published at and by. Yeah. And that's a separate document that's not actually the law. But then again, you have to actually update it. I don't think Mm -hmm. any of us is really going to, with a straight face, say that the only problem here was that the law couldn't be updated fast enough (laughs) to get the references to Netscape Communicator and SHA-1 out of it. Right. Now, that wasn't the issue. 
uh, document rot was the issue. Nobody paid any attention to it and just kept cargo cult copy and pasting and didn't care. And if that's the level of attention to detail you're going to put into the law, then you shouldn't have had it in the first place. These laws, especially as they get longer and longer, we see more and more of this just, you know, we took the same old thing and we changed a couple of words around or whatever, and we just kept grabbing these sections. And we wonder why the laws end up being, you know, these giant tomes that are thousands of pages, you know, like this, this Netscape stuff is buried on page 921. It's like, I understand this deal was put together very quickly at the last minute or whatever, but they've also been working on it for how many years? They didn't have a draft that didn't have everything cargo culted from a law that had everything cargo culted from the time before. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the performance monitoring and analytics solution for real-time visibility into a Linux environment. Combining metrics, traces, and logs in one unified platform allows you to get a bird's-eye view of your entire infrastructure. You can also see any underutilized cloud or on-premises servers via the real-time auto-generated host map. Datadog's machine learning-based alerts eliminate false positives and make sure that you only receive alerts on issues that matter. You can automatically detect unanticipated outliers, anomalies, and errors with Watchdog, the auto-detection engine that surfaces performance problems in your applications without any manual setup or configuration. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash 25admins. Start your free trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, the best way is via email, show at 2.5admins.com. And you can support creation of these episodes at 2.5admins.com slash support. You can support us by PayPal or Patreon, and if you do so via Patreon, for $5 or more per month, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So go and check that out. So, Marcelo, I think that's how you say it, writes in, I'd like to hear your opinion regarding Active Directory solutions, comparing free IPA, Samba, V4, and Open LDAP. Which do you use, and in which case? This topic is not often discussed online, and most articles are from two decades ago, so I'm interested in your comments. I've done it with Samba v4. I mean, I've I've done a no-kidding Active Directory domain controller with Samba v4 vanilla. I've done it with Samba 4 on um, on FreeNAS and on ZygmaNAS, and uh, they, they do work, but I, I don't... The thing is, if you want Active Directory, you almost certainly want Active Directory for a whole bunch of Windows machines to integrate with it. And if you're doing that, then it seems a little precious to not get the Windows server to go along with it. Um, even more so now that, you know, if you're doing all this from a highly, uh, you know, Linuxy open source perspective, you're probably running that Windows server in a VM anyway. And modern Windows Server licensing allows you to run two VMs off of the same seat of Windows Server. So you can, for your one you know, $700 cost for Windows Server, you can have a domain controller and you can have an app and file server you know, in two separate VMs. So I can't imagine the amount of additional work and potential things to go wrong and lack of you know, great support for figuring that out if it does I just, I can't imagine saving $700 being worth exposing yourself to the additional hassle and potential issues, you know, that you're going to have doing that personally. Yeah, I'd agree. For 
running the domain controller itself, you definitely probably just want a Windows VM. Now, I've used SAM before to join an open source machine to the Windows network so that, you know, the file server can authenticate people from Active Directory to do ACLs and so on. But for hosting the domain controller, like Jim's saying, if you've already got a bunch of the Windows machines, you're already in that ecosystem, it's just going to work better to have the Windows server. And yeah, it can be in a VM running on your Linux or BSD machine. That works great. Uh, and I, I'd probably do that because, yeah, like Jim's saying, saving the, the that license, especially since you kind of get the two-for-one deal going there, just not going to be worth the amount of time and hassle to get it set up and working, let alone to keep it working, and let alone every time you run into a thing where oh, actually the Samba thing doesn't quite support it 100%. It would just be easier to have a real Windows server. And when that breaks, you know, you're going to have to explain that breakage and the fact that that breakage is due to the fact that you decided to do this weird thing instead of just installing Windows. I have one client who is using, uh, I think it's Open Media Vault. And they're they're using Samba rather than Windows for, you know, centralized file storage right now. Everybody else I've just moved over to Windows. Now, that one client, like that client specifically, like they just have a bug up their butt and they don't want to have Windows. They want to have Samba underneath it. So by golly, that's what they get. And I'm not mad about it. But anywhere else where, you know, the client just wants to get the thing done with their collection of, you know, Windows machines, it's just a better idea to, to stay in that ecosystem. Now, like Alan said, absolutely, you know, we virtualize that Windows server. We put it on top of ZFS or Alan puts it on top of ZFS. They're very similar. Um, <laughs> you know, you snapshot it every hour on the hour. You replicate it to a hot spare. You replicate it offsite to DR. You know, if Windows Update goes wheels up over the weekend and the VM won't boot on Monday, you don't even try to fix that freaking thing. You just roll it back to the last good snapshot and done. That's where you get all your, you know, awesome open source, you know, this is better than if I was just doing the thing native. That's where that comes in. But where you don't want to put in your alternate open source stuff is where it's going to touch the users in ways that the users don't like. And that's that's just way too likely to happen with the AD server, in my opinion. Yeah, so either you have a bunch of Windows clients and that's why you want an Active Directory server, you might as well have Windows, or you don't have that many Windows, you don't have any Windows machines, and why do you want Active Directory? Okay, this episode is sponsored by TrueNAS from iX Systems. Go to truenas.com. TrueNAS and FreeNAS have now unified as TrueNAS, the number one open storage OS. TrueNAS uses the power and reliability of OpenZFS to bring open-source economics to enterprise-grade unified storage with support for file, block, object, and app storage. You can use the free TrueNAS Core Edition or invest in a TrueNAS Enterprise system. Coming soon is TrueNAS Scale, which provides open, hyper-converged infrastructure with support for Linux containers, and you can follow the development, try out, and contribute to this exciting project. Check out truenas.com and see how TrueNAS can support your next storage project, whether it's just a few terabytes all the way up to multiple petabytes. That's truenas.com. All right, Lilis writes in, I have a question about the server creation or decommission process. Could you guys explain what your processes are regarding these two subjects? Do developers need to fill in some form if they need a new server, for example? Do you guys update some server infrastructure list or diagram? If so, what are your tools of choice? My server list is a DNS zone file. If it's in my private DNS zone, then it is a live server that I am monitoring and managing and maintaining. 
And when I decommission it, it gets yanked right out of the zone file. And then I stop caring about it anymore. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> if I forget to take it out of Nagios, I'll remember real quick because, you know, when the private DNS entry does not resolve anymore, Nagios will holler and I'll be like, oh yeah, I decommed that. And I'll take it out of the Nagios configs as well. That's pretty much it. I don't maintain like a separate spreadsheet because I don't need to, I don't personally need to share it with anybody else. You know, things get kind of a little bit more complicated if you do, but I'm a big fan of no unnecessary duplication. And since I'm the one that needs to know all those answers, put it in the zone file and done is is good for me. We do the same thing for IP management. The the source of truth of what the IP is for is the reverse DNS zone file. For me, it's not reverse DNS. If you want the equivalent of reverse DNS, you look at the WireGuard config. <laughs> um, you know, anything that's not in the WireGuard config is an unused IP. Anything that's in the WireGuard config, it has a comment that's the same thing as, you know, what the actual DNS for that IP is. The other things in our commissioning process, uh, we use RackMonkey, which is this ye oldy Perl web script, but uh, gives you a nice diagram of the rack and lets you put in the servers and keep track of when you bought it, what its serial numbers are, uh, and so on. So it makes it easy to manage hardware refreshes and know which machines where in the rack and what is connected to and which ports on the switch it ends up getting assigned to and so on. Because again, you don't want to duplicate that information everywhere because then the two different copies will disagree about something and then you'll not know which one is right. So having a single source of truth for things is definitely my preference as well. Decommissioning is about the same. We don't decommission things very often. It's like, you know, we usually run it until it dies. Um, yeah, most of our, like our edge servers don't have anything sensitive on them. So we don't have to worry about trying to deban them or something. It's usually not the case. I actually do decommission things these days. I used to run things until the wheels fell off, but uh, lately I've been, you know, doing more of a, a planned obsolescence type deal. I'll have a hardware end of life. So uh, my decommissioning process is usually, you know, replace the machine with its replacement and then go, oh, hey, this thing's still got a few years of life left on it. I'll totally do something with that. And then it clutters up my office for another few years until it finally gets recycled. <laughs> Every once in a while, I will end up taking one of those machines. Like I'll have a client who has had... Uh, you know, a really bad year financially and, you know, they have an older machine die and they can't really afford or don't want to afford right then, you know, the full cost, you know, replacement with something brand new that they can expect to last, you know, for the same seven or eight years that they ran the wheels off the last thing. And I'll be like, well, we can real cheap do this. And, you know, then one of those things that's sitting in my boneyard might get resurrected. But that's fairly rare. Most of my folks are on a pretty reasonable, you know, planned hardware refresh cycle at this point. Yeah, and like for us, we got rid of anything that wasn't at least Westmere or so. But, you know, that covers a very large timeline nowadays. <laughs> yeah, how do you decide what that timeline is then? Uh, for us, it's mostly like when the amount of electricity it's going to use is more, is going to cost more than it's worth. Or, you know, it's just not going to have enough cores or not going to be able to support enough RAM to be useful. You know, at one point we're like, anything that doesn't have at least 16 gigs of RAM is retired. I generally tell my clients, we're looking for a five-year life cycle on most things. And for servers, it's it's a little bit different. For a server, then you say, we plan financially for a five-year life cycle. At the end of five years, we'll reevaluate and look how things go. And, you know, a lot of the time you may make the choice, you know, hey, 
we want to stretch this out to seven or eight years, and they'll usually do that just fine. But, you know, the big thing there is, okay, that money that you had planned to spend in five years, you don't spend that. You keep that socked away, you know, so because now you're you're more in the likelihood that you may need to buy something on an emergency basis. So you need to make sure that you can do that. Now, most of these folks also, you know, there's a uh, – there's a level of redundancy in that they've usually got like a production machine and an on-site hot spare. So it's not the end of the world if something does fall over, but you still don't want to be doing that. Like, you know, 20 year old dirt poor thing where you literally drive your car until like I used to replace my tires literally when they blew out, <laughs> you know, like back in the late eighties and the, in the mid nineties, I had, you know, cars that had the full size wheel in the trunk with a real tire on it. And that was my replacement strategy. When a tire blew out, <laughs> I put the new wheel with a new tire on it on the side of the road. I put a new tire on that wheel and that one went in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till the next blowout. Replace that one. But, uh, you know, as you grow up a little bit more and you get a little bit more financially stable and, you know, you have more an, an interest of uptime and planned repair cycles, then, you know, for your servers, as with your tires, you're better off saying, OK, look, I get that it hasn't blown out, <laughs> but we want to replace it before it does. Yeah, because it must be cheaper to do that ultimately in terms of labor and uh, downtime and all the rest of it. I mean, it certainly can be, but I think the big thing is not that it's cheaper in terms of labor and downtime or whatever necessarily so much as that you're less likely to drop the ball on it. You know, if you're constantly playing it loosey goosey and by ear and, oh, we'll do this over here and that over there, then it's really easy to end up, you know, oh, I really should have proactively replaced this server like three years ago, but I didn't because it just kind of didn't get to it. And we don't have like a set policy that we follow. And you're more likely to get yourself in trouble that way. Whereas if you say, okay, you know, I've got like a tickler. This machine is five years old. It's time to talk to the client about, you know, okay, you're at the end of your planned five-year life cycle. You know, what do we want to do? And maybe they have some questions for you or maybe they just want to say, you give me advice. Maybe say, yeah, you know, I think we're good pushing to seven here. This machine looks good. Or maybe say, hey, you need more than you did five years ago. And, you know, maybe it's a better idea to do a, go ahead and do a forklift upgrade on this thing. But either way, you know, like at five years, you do this. At seven years, you do that. And like for me personally right now, the, the seven years is like, a, okay, so it's time to replace this now, period, because it's seven years old and you're in the really crappy part of the bathtub curve. Like this is where you end up unexpectedly having a capacitor blow out on a motherboard or, you know, having a three drives in a, in a five drive server all fail, you know, within two or three days. This is, we don't want to operate like this. We want to go ahead and replace it. Yes, it might keep running without a hitch till 12 years or everything might just completely blow up and get your cat pregnant tomorrow. Um, this is not what we want to play with. And they say, well, we're still going to do whatever. Then they go in the, okay, they do whatever file. Yeah. yeah in, the, in the end, you want the migration to be planned. That's the big thing, right? Like as, as that seven years is coming up, you're like, all right, we want to order the new one and in an orderly manner, get everything moved over to it, not run it until the wheels fall off. All right, now we have to get a server. Oh, there's a shortage on hard drives right now. It's going to take an extra week before we can get the new machine. Yeah. Or like, oh, it, you know, there was a pandemic on and uh, Wuhan closed down in China and you went nine months without being able to get the server chassis that you wanted for a particular project, which... Totally happened to me. Power supplies also were a huge problem. If you wanted a power supply above 500 watts and, you know, uh, gold rated or above, oh my God, they were, they were worse to find than toilet paper for, you know, like six months plus. Yeah. And I've, I've definitely seen wait times of 
more than four weeks to be able to get 12 terabyte hard drives mm-hmm. because everybody wanted them. And so I tell people the same thing, but even just growing your ZFS pool, you want to grow it before you're already 80% full because there's the point when you decide to make the change and then there's the point where you can actually do it. <laughs> and so you want to start it early enough that you're done before you hit the point where your pants are on fire. Yeah, and presumably you want to flick that switch over to the new server not at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Monday or even worse, 5 o'clock on a Friday. You want to do that at a time when it's, you know, you've got time to fix things if something went slightly wrong with it, right? Well, I mean, for me, when I'm flicking that switch, it's not something that takes a long time or has any real possibility of major screw-ups because I'm spinning up the same VMs that I just shut down on the last box. There's not really anything that's changed as far as that goes. If there was, I would have picked it up before we got to the point where we had, you know, the like 90 seconds of downtime while I moved the VMs over. But yeah, you you, you do want to be able to do that on a plan. I mean, the big difference there for me is like, if this is a planned migration, then, you know, you're down for like 90 seconds in the final stage of my migrating the VMs over. If it's unplanned, then you may lose up to an hour worth of data, you know, since the last automated hourly replication from production to hot spare. Right. Plus however many hours it takes to to get everything moved over and and get things back up and running. Well, that's not going to be a problem for me because, you know, the hot spare is kept up to date with hourly replication all the time. So the hot spare will be ready to go immediately, pretty much. There's just a couple of minor configuration tweaks to, you know, promote it to production and all the data on it will be fine. The issue is just, again, that, you know, you've just time traveled back up to 59, you know, minutes and 59 seconds. Because, yeah, I remember a similar uh, one. We had uh, a customer that had the storage server and it had like redundant everything, right? We have, uh, you know, multipath on separate HBAs and lots of hard drives and mirrors, everything. And then the one thing that can go bad. Redundancy is not a backup. Redundancy is not a backup. No, uh, but this, this one was, they, they weren't after the backup. Their problem was they wanted the uptime, but they blew a capacitor on the motherboard and. It's like, well, you know, luckily we have this spare server that we can plug all the drives into and so on. But it was like, yeah, we were not happy that the one thing in our server that's not redundant, right? We have redundant power supplies, redundant HVAs, redundant disks, whatever. But, you know, with the motherboard blows up, the motherboard has blown up. Uh, but also, turns out their hardware manufacturer is like, yeah, we, we don't do, you know, four hour delivery of a replacement like Dell. And it's like, because how often do you actually need that? That's also another issue with just, you know, running your servers until the wheels fall off. You know, when it's an eight-year-old server, you can't just get the same motherboard tomorrow. Yeah. Which is also another reason, you know, for virtual machines again. Like, I do not miss the bad old days before VMs when you had clients with Windows servers. And that thing was not going to boot unless it was on the exact same hardware down to every nut and bolt. And you're like... Where the hell do I get this, you know, six-year obsolete Asus motherboard from? And the answer is you don't. So, you know, you're trying to cherry-pick data off, you know, from the hard drive and, you know, do a clean reinstall and figure out how to get apps to work with data that hadn't been properly backed up, but you're just, like, siphoning off of an old dead system. No fun. There's nothing like copying database binaries at like, you know, 11.30 a.m. on a Tuesday, you know, while your client is yammering at you about how much money they're losing. That's so much fun. I guess we did uh, miss answering one part of the question. They had asked about uh, developers filling out a form or something. We don't have anything quite so officious, but I could see how, especially, you know, like Jim was saying, 
most likely now you're not going to necessarily be deploying hardware for people as much as VMs. And for planning purposes, it might be helpful to have a list of the VMs and who they're for, how much of what resources they need and what it's for when you're deciding, you know, how to split those across your your compute machines. And also when it comes time to do the upgrade of the hypervisor machines, um, how do you decide how much RAM to put in them or how much storage you need? Part of that is you, you're going to want to look at what people need, what they say they need, and what they actually were using <laughs> and try to get something that, you know, make sure you can provide what them what you told them you're going to, but also... If they said they only needed a couple of cores and they're maxing them out all the time, maybe they need a couple more than that. Or, you know, they said they needed 16 cores and they're never using them, then maybe you don't have to give them quite so many and you can give those to somebody else. All right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm on Twitter at JRSSnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. And uh, we'll be back next week.